On this episode of The Popcorn Diet, we take a look back at 2019 as well as the entire decade to talk about our favorite movies. That's right. It's the United States of Film 2019. Get your popcorn ready. Welcome all you good movie buddies to The Popcorn Diet, a podcast for those who live on a steady diet of movie, theater, popcorn, and other movie snacks. As always, my name is Rick Williamson, your very best good movie buddy, and joining us as usual is our other good movie buddy, the Canadian machine, Mr. David Melhorn. David, Happy New Year. Thank you. I mean, we're recording this before the new year, but we're putting hours it out before the new year. hours, mere hours before the new year. But we're, we're putting it out. This is our first thing of the new year. And why not spend the first day looking back at the past? It's true. I never understood why people did their like best of the year list in on like December 10th. Mm-hmm. There's three weeks of movies left. It's true. So we waited to the last possible second. We saw. About every movie we could or were willing to see um, until the Oscar nominations come out. And we'll have our predictions for those nominations, I think, on our next episode. But we're we're looking back, man. 2019 is over. How do you feel about it? You know, first and foremost, I just feel old. Yeah. Thinking that we're about to enter into 2020. I still remember when Y2K was a thing. 2020. 20 so years ago. That, uh... That's a little uh, of a wake-up call for me. Hasn't aged very well? No, it Y2K hasn't. Aged. Y2K aged poorly. <laughs> aged poorly. That being said, it's uh, it's exciting to uh, to think about the future, what we got of in course. store for, for us. We're not as far along technology-wise as what I would hope, but uh, that's nope. all right. Still no flying cars. Nope, we're not but there yet. The Earth has completed... Another rotation around the sun. So that is true. Good job, everybody, for making it. Uh, so this is our United States of Film podcast. This is the this is the episode that we do at the end of every year, where we look at uh, you know the the past year's worth of movies. But we're going to do it a little bit differently this year because it is the end of the decade, rather than focusing on sort of you know the micro categories that we used to talk about. You know our favorite moments in film and stuff like that. We're really focusing on our favorite movies of 2019 and then sort of a a, a decade in review, if you will, uh, and then our favorite movies of the decade. And that's just kind of how we're going to do it. Um, It's uh, This is an episode for people that enjoy lists. If you like lists, strap in because we got some lists for you. And even though I did make every, every year this decade, I made a corresponding list that was as long as the number of the decade. So like I had the top 12 of 2012, the top 13 of 2013, so on and so forth. And I do have 19 movies that I put on my list, but we'll only talk about 10. So there are movies that didn't make my list, David, that, that you know, movies like Us, movies like Dolomite Is My Name, movies like Joker, Rise of Skywalker, How to Train Your Dragon, Hidden World, Toy Story 4, those are on my list, but they're not on the list. Um, but yeah, man, let's start it off with our, we'll go back and forth. And, uh, you know, if I say a movie that's on your list, you just say what number it is, and then we'll just talk about it, you know, now and vice versa. 
But do you want to start? Do you would you like the honors? Well, I think first and foremost, as I was going through this, okay, this was really the year of like things coming to an end. Oh, so very much so. Like we had a decade coming to an end, obviously. Mm-hmm. But you think about it, we had the Skywalker saga coming to an end. Yep. Smaller version, but we had the second it, which ended the ended that it whole French fries. Yep. Uh, we had Toy Story, which one could argue is probably the end of that. It was the unexpected fourth entry. That's what so they keep saying. Who knows? We could have a fifth entry too. But <laughs> either way, it felt like the end of that. Um, we had the last, or maybe maybe it won't be the last. Feels like the last John Wick movie. Yeah. Um, but again, maybe we'll have another one. We had the last Avengers Endgame mm-hmm. of this whole the, the, series, the, final, the Infinity Gauntlet. The Infinity Saga. Yep. So we had the end of that. A lot of sagas ending. And I feel like I'm missing one well, more. I mean, but there was, was just a lot of movies that were kind of like a culmination of a lot of things they seem like coming to an end. Even in movies that maybe weren't sequels or maybe not even in movies at all, whether they be television shows. You know, Game of Thrones ended. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at movies like... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, The Irishman, and those movies feel like culminations of the respective director's entire careers, sure. you know? Yeah, supposedly, you know, the second to last Quentin Tarantino. Supposedly, film, How to Train you know? Your Dragon trilogy, which I'll yeah, go back there you for. Go. Yep, yep. That ended as well. So uh, there was, it was, there was a lot of endings in 2019, and maybe that was intentional, maybe not, maybe... Maybe it's just our human nature to identify patterns when they match up like that. You know, the end of a decade, moving into the new roaring 20s, hopefully. Um, You know, you can't help but notice a lot of that. At the same time, you know, this this was also a year of a lot of launches, a lot of rebirths. Uh, This this decade saw an, an exceptional amount of talent you know, introduced to the world and grow in the world. People like Ryan Coogler, Taika Waititi, Greta Gerwig, Ava DuVernay, um, Jordan Peele, you know, mm-hmm. they started this decade and have are growing into household names, you know, and that's really exciting. Sure. Um, but bef- we're not going to talk about the decade yet. Not yet. We, we got to finish 2019 first. We do. We got to put a bow on that. So let's... With 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 all the pleasantries aside, aside, David, I will let you start. I will be age. I don't know if you're older than me or not, but age before beauty, I suppose. Do we do we want to talk about our just misses first? Yeah, we can. Lord knows, I have nine of them. Okay, so, so. for for me, my just misses, and then we can get into going back and forth on our our top ten. It was hard. Some of these were very hard. It was, and and full disclosure, there's a number of movies I haven't seen yet from this year. Let's so give me three movies that you haven't seen yet. The the biggest the biggest list. ones that I feel like are are going to be impactful to my list would be Parasite would be one. Um, let's see which other ones that I list that I haven't seen yet. Um, I know the three on my list you haven't. Which seen. three are on your list? 1917, I can almost guarantee you, is going to wind up in my top 10 when I see it. Also on mine that I haven't seen. Uh, Little Women, and I just have not been able to bring myself to watch Marriage Story yet. Like, I've said it before. I've said it on Twitter. I've said it on here. I have absolutely zero desire to watch a movie about a marriage falling apart, regardless of how 
sweet it might be and heartfelt it might be and all that kind of stuff like i just i gotta ramp up to that yeah so for me it's parasite it's marriage story it's two popes it's um 1917 yeah uncut gems yes those are ones that i haven't seen yet and very well could make my list so this is going to be a list not including those Um, but my just misses were glass us Shazam, Rocket Man, Spider Man, Far From Home, Ad Astra, Joker, Dolomite is my name, The Irishman, and Six Underground. Wow. Ooh, we're going to have different lists. I'm very excited about this. <laughs> um, my miss is going from 19 uh, Joker, uh, The Two Popes, I, which I re- genuinely and surprisingly enjoyed, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, Toy Story 4, Us. Number 14 was How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. 13 was Six Underground, uh, which is a, a Michael Bay disaster piece of epic proportions. Spider-Man Far From Home was number 12. And I, as much as I hated that it didn't make it, Dolomite Is My Name is number 11. I absolutely love Dolomite Is My Name. It's on Netflix. Watch it. It's phenomenal. Eddie Murphy's phenomenal. But that made it. That's my 11 through 19. Nice. It just misses. And, and for me... I think before we go into any of our rankings, really we should kind of outline how each of us chose our lists and how we rank them. For me, one of my biggest priorities when I'm ranking is rewatchability. Okay. That has a huge impact for me because if I have that desire to keep going back to it, to me that's... That's valuable. Valuable and one of the top movies of the year. So a lot of these films, I would fully admit, are not going to be on any best picture watch lists and <laughs> are not going to be considered, you know, the best from a film perspective and mm-hmm. how it was created in that. But for me, they're movies that I can see myself continuing to go back. Granted, all these are 2019 ones. So some of them, we don't even have the opportunity to go back because they're sure. not in theaters and they're not streaming yet. Sure. But these are movies that I can see myself wanting to go see again that when I walked out of the theater and kind of thought about the movie afterwards, I wanted to go back and see it. And some of these, I did go back and see them in theater. So that's one of the biggest criteria for me. And that's probably reflective in my list. The other thing is obviously how good of, or how memorable, like what was the impact? Am I going to be sitting there thinking about that film for an extended period of time? Is it something that, you know, years down the road, I'm going to be like, Oh yeah, that movie was really good. Um, so there's things like that. So while there's some movies that maybe I probably won't revisit as much, um, I still believe that they had a big impact when I saw them. They just maybe are not the type of topic that I'm going to come and revisit over and over again. And that's true of both not only the year list but the decade list. Exactly. Say, right? yep. So for me, it's it's a little less about rewatchability. Like I'll fully admit there are, are movies on this list, both both my year list and my decade list, that I might not revisit again. I I might not be like, oh, I gotta watch it again. You know, there are certain movies th- throughout the year. You know, your your Schindler's lists. You know, y- your movies where you recognize the um, the craftsmanship. You recognize the amazing quality of that film, and yet at the same time, that's not that's not a rewatchable. That's not exactly something that's going to be in the rotation. So for me, I focus a little bit less on rewatchability and I focus on two things. And you mentioned one of them, which is how does the movie make you feel? 
right? That is a big one for me. When you list off a title, when I list off a title and it gives me a very distinct, memorable feeling that is often tied to memorable scenes in that film, memorable aspects of that film, whatever, that's a big one for me. Because there are some movies on my decades list that I have not seen for a while, but I can distinctly remember how much I enjoyed that movie, why I enjoyed that movie, why it's on my list. Um, And then another part of my list particularly is, and David, I know you bust my chops on this a little bit, but I do like a little variety, you know? And if that means that a certain movie is dropped off of maybe my big list or my top 10 or whatever, just to make room for a movie that I think isn't represented or the type of movie that isn't represented, I'm going to do it. Like, I'm going to, we were talking earlier about Taika Waititi films and... It was, I mean, you're talking Hunt for the Wilder People, you're talking Thor Ragnarok, you're talking Jojo Rabbit. It is perfectly fine if all three of those movies are on your long list or on your top ten list. There is nothing wrong with that at all. Those are all great films in my opinion. But the way that I look at it is I look at it as I could put Taika Waititi on my list three times or I could put him on my list two times and let in something else that... I still love and I still think deserves to be there. Um, But, you know, I and it's underrepresented. I look at this as how I know you're shaking my head and I know no one else can see it because they're listening to us. But I look at this as an extension of my feelings of the Oscar pot of the Oscar debate as well, which is I want more variety. I want more genres represented. I want more if something is is one of the best comedies, it should be represented over the seventh best drama. If something is an excellent action film, it should be represented over the sixth best biopic, you know? So that's kind of been my approach um, it, with with all of this. Uh, so, well, and, and I, I won't turn this into a back and forth. I but, mean, we could go but, for... But, but here would be my counterpoint and the, and the reason why I gave... I give Rick such a hard time about this. Go ahead. Go and ahead. give you such a hard time about it's this. It's 29th. It's the end of the year. Go ahead. Is that, to me, when you're making a best of list, we're not some awards group. We're not. Right. We're, we're talking about my favorite movies, your favorite movies. Right. From a decade. It doesn't matter if you have... 10 action movies as your top 10 movies. No, you're right. It just may mean that you like action. Sure. You shouldn't be taking out your seventh favorite action movie just so you can shove in a genre that you feel is underrepresented. I understand the comment when it comes to Oscars, but again, I think I think any person who's competitive is Which making is, is making <laughs> a work of art is spending time like I would never want to be awarded something or getting a nomination just because they felt like they needed to check the box of a certain type of film. Like sure. if I made a comedy or I made a biopic or I made whatever, sure, I wouldn't want to get the nomination because, oh, we don't have one. We don't think you're in the top 10, but you know what? We'll bump out number 10 just so we can put and check a box to say we had a minority or a comedy or a horror movie or that kind of thing. We're like talking about that's, genres like diversity hires. Yeah. So <laughs> like to me, if, if I was applying for anything and again, you know, you and I don't have as much experience in this because we're white males, straight white American, straight males. White, white males. We so reckon, we, we, we recognize, recognize that we recognize um, our privilege, but at the same time, like in general, like 
and again, it's probably just like being a competitive person. Like I would never want to want to be awarded something because people felt like they needed to have someone like me to do that. Yeah. Like I would want it because I truly am top 10. Like I don't want to get this off of anything other than merit. Well, fortunately, I mean, it's our podcast. It's our rules. Yeah, sure. Do whatever we want. You know, it's funny as we were sitting here making these lists, like we were trying to get our top 10 of every decade. We were trying to narrow it down to 10 of every decade. But there's nothing saying you have to do that. There's nothing saying that your long list has to be 100 movies long. There's nothing saying anything. If you love a movie, regardless, put it on there. Like there are some there are some, you know, years, David, as we were talking about it, where I could have added five, six, seven more movies to the list. But, you know, it was my self-imposed control that I put over it. So we've certainly approached our list from different perspectives. And I hopefully think that will make a more interesting podcast about it. Um, And this will be a supersized edition. This will be a fairly lengthy podcast, obviously, because we're covering 10 years worth of content. But uh, I'm excited for it, man. You ready? All right. So number 10 for me from 2019. Also, for 2019, we'll take it easy on spoilers. You know, unless it was kind of an early release, then we're going to we'll let you know. But for some of these newer movies that come out, we'll take it easy on spoilers. But for the decade list, we're just going to talk about it. So. So for 2019, again, I feel like I'm struggling a little bit because I haven't seen uh, a couple of movies that I think will will make that list. But for me, you know, as I went through it, actually, it, it surprised me a little bit. But it chapter two is number 10 on my list. Very interesting. Why? For me, it's it probably is a culmination of combining the two, but I go back to it as I was thinking about movies, and there's a couple scenes from that that movie that really stick out that I really enjoyed. The Chinese food scene, yep. uh, being one of them. I like a lot of the comedy that's that's mixed in. Mm-hmm. I I like a lot of the casting choices that they made, and I just it was a movie that you know I just enjoy go- coming back to. Sure, man. I mean, and and there's something to be said about blockbuster horror filmmaking and doing this franchise in a way that I think still paid off, you know, fans of the book and whatnot. Um, it chapter two did not make my list at all. I know it didn't even make your uh, um, 19. It, I still enjoyed it. Yeah. Perfectly sure. enjoyable film did not hate it chapter two, but it didn't make my list at all uh, for number 10 for me. A uh, movie I just recently saw is uncut gems. Uncut Gems is an insane movie, and it's certainly not for everybody, but it's very frantic. It's very hectic. It's the ultimate, <laughs> it's the ultimate degenerate sports gambler movie. Adam Sandler, and I know everybody's talked about this, and I know it got hyped up and all that stuff, but Adam Sandler is absolutely phenomenal in Uncut, Uncut Gems as this low-life, degenerate, Jewish, New York Diamond District you know, sales guy who's just gambling away his debts, selling off things that don't belong to him so that he can fund more gambling so that he can hit it big and pay everybody off. He's being hunted down by the people that he owes. His family hates him. And it's just, it's magnetic to watch. Uh, And the, you know, I mean, that's really the only thing I can say about it is it's certainly not for everybody. Like I said, it's the, the pace in which things happen and the, the, the way that the dialogue layers on top of one another, it's very naturalistic. Um, there's not exactly a plot per se other than Adam Sandler tries to get out of debt and stay above water from all the debts that he owes. 
Um, but it's just great stuff. It feels like a real slice of life New York movie. Kevin Garnett's in it. He's great. The cast is phenomenal. Uh, and I'm really, really excited to get back on the Adam Sandler bandwagon. Like, I'm there. Uh, the Safty brothers, uh, Josh and Benny Safty, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Really interested in them now. I'm going to go back and watch some of their older movies and uh, and see what that was about. But Uncut Gems is number 10 for me. What do you got for number nine? Number nine for me is John Wick 3. Okay, I have that it, at number eight. And it probably is a culmination of you know all three movies kind of being helped helping this movie. For sure. But I enjoyed... Going deeper into this John Wick, John Wick world that mm-hmm. we've built, um, I enjoyed introducing new concepts and things like that. And and again, you know, a big part for me is rewatchability. And, and what's more rewatchable than some John Wick movies? John Wick's great. John Wick is one of we we talk about how you know the existing IP and stuff is taking over the world. And while that's certainly a conversation to have, John Wick came out of nothing. You know, it was it certainly has a lot to owe to past assassin movies and past action movies, kung fu movies and and things of that nature. But but you're right. I have it at number eight. And um, John Wick three is one of the best action movies I think I've ever seen. It's incredible the way that they stage action in a way that is hard hitting, violent. It's violent and it's just it's fun. Some of those scenes, like the knife fight in the beginning, the knife fight in the beginning is just amazing. Phenomenal. Yeah. Phenomenal stuff. And the way that they keep building on this world, this yeah. completely built out original world. Um, I mean, they're gorgeous. It's gorgeous looking movies. So you had John Wick at number, John Wick uh, chapter three, Parabellum at number nine. I have Ford v. Ferrari at number nine. Number seven for me. Number seven for you. So, so. David, one of the reasons I like this movie so much is that it is so competent. Uh, and and that maybe seemed like faint praise. But what I find interesting about that is that it is a movie about people who are so competent, right? It's a movie about guys who want to be the best at what they do. And they're just these normal guys, and they just want to be the best at racing a car. They're not doing anything different that's ever been done before. They're just building a better car for the race. And that's very similar to the way that this film is made. It's not doing anything different that we haven't seen before in a men going to work movie or a racing movie. Um, but the stuff that it does is so good and so enjoyable and so well made that it makes it at number nine on my list. Why did you like it so much? I think first and foremost, a lot of the things that you said, but also I, I'm big Matt Damon, Christian Bale fan, and I think both of them are great in Can't this film. Can't discount that the value of that. And I think it's just one of those films that's easy to put on, easy to watch, um, and like you said, it it doesn't really have many missteps. You know, there's nothing that's like over the top, super memorable about it, but that it's just consistent throughout the whole film. And you know, start to finish, I enjoyed it, and I think it's it's one that. I could see myself if it was on TV, you know, sitting there and watching a portion of it and those types of things. And um, yeah, I, I just had a good time with it. It was it definitely fits the the mode of what everybody called it, which is a dad, a dad movie. movie. <laughs> um, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's so. in the, no, it's the it's a dad movie in the best way. Like, again, it's 
And there are some movies in our decade list that we'll talk about as well. But some of the best, most satisfying movies are just about people who excel at their job. You know, there's yep. there's nothing. There's no world stakes. There's nothing. I just want to win this race. I just want to beat this guy. Um, and that just makes it so enjoyable. So that was my number nine. Uh, what's your number eight? Listen, I think the bottom three of my top ten fall into the category of, to some point, like, guilty pleasures. Okay. And this one is probably the most defining of those. Okay. But it's Hobbs and Shaw. Ooh. You give me Statham. Wow. You give me The Rock. It's got everything you want. You give me action. You give me Idris Elba. I'm going to enjoy it. And it, we, we put it into this world of Fast and Furious. I'm I'm all for it. So it's not without its issues. There's a couple spots that, you know, maybe maybe it could have been better, but I enjoy the action. I love all the back and forth between Statham and The Rock. Uh, I think it's a lot of fun, and I'm a sucker for the Fast and the Furious movies in general. I'm a sucker for Jason Statham, so mm -hmm. it's, it's no surprise that I enjoyed this film. And, uh, yeah, I just had a lot of fun with it. You want to talk about an actual throwback of a movie, like a movie that is made with 2019 money, 2019 technology, but is a movie that should have come out in 1987. <laughs> it is true. Hobbs and Shaw. Like in the most, it is, it is, it is, it, it owes so much to like Tango and Cash, you know, going all the way down to the trucks, going all the way to the sister being involved, mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff. And it, and it really is, I mean, it really is setting up the next inevitable step to where the, the Fast and Furious general franchise is going, which is, you know, just full-blown superheroes-type movies. Yeah. But that falls in line with John Wick as well. You're talking about an original established movie series that built itself from the ground up in a way that is very difficult to do nowadays. And it's coming up. This is technically, this is technically the ninth film in the franchise, even though it's a, a spinoff. Yep. You know, if Fast you will. and the Furious presents. Yeah, exactly. And what we're gonna get a number. We're gonna get a Fast and Furious nine in twenty twenty this year. Um, but it, it is. It's it's great dumb fun, and it knows it's great dumb fun, and that is one of the most important things when it comes to you know building uh, an enjoyable movie is. Self-awareness. Yeah. You know, what does what do you know? Right. Mm -hmm. uh, David Leach, the director of the movie, co-directed in uh, the first John Wick. Yeah. Um, so you, you can kind of see how that, you know, that that there's uh, just some memorable action. Exactly. Sets in that the there's one on the on the skyscraper is a great one. Mm -hmm. Even the opening scene is great. There's the, just a lot of the, great memorable the island, set pieces. The whole island thing. The yeah. whole Russian Chernobyl, but not really Chernobyl yeah, type yeah. sequence is is great, and and I, I certainly am not going to fault you for having that movie on my <laughs> on your list. Um, it's phenomenal. Uh, number eight for me was John Wick Chapter Three. We already talked about it more, but again, kind of going off what you said, we have seen, and and I'll talk about more about this in in the second half of this episode, but we have seen action evolve and audiences respond to that evolved action in giving us memorable, legible, understandable action sequences. And it's all, it's, it's all just another form of artistic filmmaking. It is hard to put together coherent action sequences and to get the audience to understand the geography of where people are in relation to the bad guy, in relation to the explosion 
Um, so credit where credit's due. Like John Wick Chapter 3, number 8 for me. Hobbs and Shaw, number 8 for you. Number 7 for me was Ford v. Ferrari. There you go. Again, legible action, legible understanding, and just dudes being good at their job. Um, What's number 7 for you? Number 7 for me is one that just missed your list, uh, and it's Ad Astra. Okay. And you want to swing in the other direction with Ad Astra where... Again, a movie that has some very clear, unique action sequences, but is such an incredibly dense movie that explores the idea of what it means to be heroic, what it means to be a man, you know, man up, get the job done, what it means... Uh, for all of those things, like it really breaks apart the idea of heroism. It really breaks apart the idea of belief, following Brad Pitt's character literally through space to go find his dad. Uh, um, it is one of the most incredible experiences that I had in a movie theater this year. And I mean, you look at my previous years, I love space movies, apparently. I never really considered myself somebody who loves space movies, but Ad Astra fits right in with movies like Interstellar, movies like Gravity, movies that have really complex things to say and using the idea of the infinite vastness of space to talk about them. Yeah. So I loved Ad Astra. Well, um, speaking of space, you can't get much more space than my number six, mm -hmm. which is Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. Rise of Skywalker made it. Boy, is it a lot of Star Wars. Listen, <laughs> it has its issues. Of course. And again, the reason it's on my list has a lot to do with the fact that Star Wars has such a memory in my life growing up with Star Wars. You know, I had action figures. I went to the... The premieres, the premieres camped out like it's, it's had a big impact on me as far as my movie watching and, and my love of movies. And it's it's a big part of that. And just the world of Star Wars that it's created. And to me, what Rise of Skywalker did well was kind of close the book on that storyline that I've followed for almost my entire life. Yeah. And so. That to me is what's enjoyable about it. I've only seen it once so far. I can't, I really want to get back to the theaters and see it again um, as soon as possible. And I think it's going to be one that I enjoy coming back to just like I do most of the Star Wars movies. Most of the Star Wars <laughs> movies. Yeah. It'll be really interesting to watch them all in one big marathon again. Yeah. And, and to see how that um, affects maybe the general attitude towards it. Because it's important that we mention that. And we mentioned in our last episode as well when we talked about Star Wars Rise of Skywalker in length, we both love The Last Jedi. Yeah. Like, that, we're not some one of those, you know, whiny fanboys on Twitter who were angry because yep. Luke Skywalker hit on an island and that's not my hero. Like, Last Jedi was dope. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I was never really all of that emotionally... Um, troubled by what they did in rise of skywalker yeah. i thought as you said it was a fitting end and maybe maybe i enjoyed it too a lot more because i did a marathon leading up to it basically like the week leading up to it yeah you did i watched from phantom menace i watched every even rogue one and solo i watched so i watched every star wars movie mm -hmm. in chronological order leading up to it and you know to me it was 
it's definitely not perfect, but it was a great ending to a great sure. storyline. I would argue, story. n- no spoilers, I would argue that there is another culmination. I would guess that there's another culmination of a large franchise on your list. Oh, yeah. That we could argue does does it better. Yeah. You know, but that does but Rise of Skywalker is still great. So that was your number seven, Rise of Skywalker. And yep. my number seven was Ad Astra. No, that was number six for me. That was your number six? Seven was Ford V Ferrari. That's for right. Me. Excuse me. So your number six was uh Rise of Skywalker. I'm already screwing up the numbers. <laughs> my number six was Jojo Rabbit. Uh and David, you and I saw this movie, and it was one that we walked out of that we both were like, that might be one of the best movies we saw this year. Yeah. Did it make your list? It did. Okay, what's well, number two? It's number two for you. Oh, man. So, well, then I'll let you start. Why, why, why did you love Jojo Rabbit so much? I have a lot of feelings about Jojo Rabbit, but, but what was it to, to you? So I think there's, there's a number of things about Jojo Rabbit that, that hit so well for me. One, I think... Taika, I love Taika, and what, I, what a decade and, for him. And his his comedy in general, like, just hits me really well. Like, mm-hmm. I really enjoy the way that he approaches comedy. I love the jokes and the the humor in Thor, uh, and I love the jokes and the humor in this movie as well, and and even the other things that he's done, like Hunt for Wilder People and things like that as well. Sure. So right off the bat, the humor is is kind of in in the mode of of what I enjoy. I thought it was really cool to take a different approach to something as horrible as Hitler and the Nazis and everything that went on with them. And, you know, not that we haven't had satire before, but it was done in a lot different way than (laughs) anything that we've seen before. Yeah, I think also. You know, I, I, I'm a sucker for, I feel like, those movies that remind you of childhood. And, and while this childhood for JoJo was very different than any childhood I have, I yes. think you always identify to certain things. Oh, sure. Um, the going of to being camp. a kid and going, uh, being a kid, going to camp, you know, the family dynamic in some way, sure. like growing up and wanting to you know, be older than you are maybe and have right. more responsibility. I love the dynamic of, of friendship between him and um, I can't remember his, his best buddy, friend and his, it, his yeah. buddy in it. Uh, but there was just, there was quite a few moments that made me literally laugh out loud. And it, you know, not that I'm not someone who doesn't laugh out loud, but normally like I'm not one to laugh out loud in a theater sure. type of thing. Sure. And there was quite a few moments that got me. And then just the heart of the movie, too. I felt like it was a movie that had a lot of heart. I think it's a movie that's very applicable to the world we live in now and the society that we live in now that people could take a lot of lessons from that film sure, and, and take them to heart. And so it was a combination of all of those that, you know, the, it seems like there's always one film or in a lot of years there's one film that maybe is the smaller movie, maybe a little bit more off the radar, maybe right. doesn't have as much you know, publicity behind it that like just kind of checks a lot of the boxes of what I really enjoy in films, which is, you know, humor, you know, great message or great story behind it and something different too. So, um, that was, those were a lot of the reasons why I loved it as much. And the performances are fantastic too, which obviously, 
you know, to down. be that high on my list, yeah. up and down. Every person in that film is just a lot of fun. Absolutely, man. And and the stuff that you had mentioned, what what I love about that, it, you know, whether it be the the nostalgia of like you said, going to camp, you know, growing up, um, being a kid, and stuff like that. I love that it uses that to tell a story about how to deal with hate. It famously was marketed as an anti-hate satire. And there are a lot of people out there who really disliked the movie because they felt it was so simple-minded or because they felt like it was like, oh, just be nice to the Nazis or something like that and took offense to that. And I think those people missed the entire point of the movie, which is that you can change lives by opening yourself up by being decent by educating people uh, i firmly believe and i think jojo rabbit represents this very well is that there are two types of um sisms all right and when i say sisms i'm talking your racisms your sexisms your whatever you know there are basically two types of that right one is bred purely in hate and one belongs purely to hate and those types of things should be met in kind. They should be met with aggression. They should be met to stamp those out. But I think that a majority of it is based in ignorance and lack of understanding. And this that's what Jojo Rabbit is about. It's about using explanation and love and understanding to make those connections to people who just don't know. They're uneducated. They're miseducated. They misunderstand. And sometimes it's extremely, extremely hard to do. Um, but it was one of my favorite things about Jojo Rabbit is its message of be decent. You know, be a decent, good person, even to the people who treat you like garbage, even to the people who you perceive as standing in your way as an enemy, you know, um, rising above that. I think that's extremely important. And, and is it naive? I don't know. Maybe. I guess it all depends on the situation. But I, I see way, way, way too many people who respond to naivete, who respond to ignorance, who respond to un, un, a lack of understanding, a lack of education, a lack of knowledge and experience with anger, with aggression. And it doesn't help. It doesn't build anything. And that's why I like Jojo Rabbit so much. That why, that's why it was number six. Um, I don't know if we'll talk more about any other movie on the list uh, than we it's will true. with that because I think that, although I think you and I will have some similar films here. So with that being said, what is your number five? Number five for me is Toy Story 4. Ooh, very high on your list here. It is. Well, I had it at 16. So for me, Toy, this is, again, coming back to a culmination. Toy Story sure. is probably one of the films that I have watched the most in my lifetime. Both as a kid growing up, Toy Story was by far the animated movie once it came out that I watched the most. Sure. And most 95, we were nine. Yeah. So it, it it was something I could watch from nine on yeah. for, for a long time before it got old. Sure. And now that I have a kid, kids, um, but one that's watching movies, he loves the Toy Story movies too. So. I had that gap where I stopped watching it very often, <laughs> but in the last three years, I've been watching it a whole lot. We're back so, at it again. And I realized how much I just really enjoy it. it. It hits so many notes for me as far as my childhood, how I approached playing with toys, all that kind of stuff, and just the idea of growing up. And 
the thing that I've always really liked about the Toy Story movies is you have the level that appeals to kids and just the fun of the movies, but you also have a lot of like deeper meanings of, you know, whether it be, you know, Toy Story 3, which one could argue is probably the the best of all of the films. Um, But there's just, you know, so much to it. And I enjoyed the introduction of Forky. He was a lot of fun Uh in that movie. And it, again, it's, it's, I'm a sucker for nostalgia from my love of the Toy Story movies in general. Uh, But I had zero expectations going into this film because I never thought we'd have another Toy Story movie. Right. And for it to come back introduce a new character and and one could argue spend a decent amount of time away from a lot of our traditional characters and for me to really enjoy it still was a lot of fun for me and and one that you know I've seen I saw multiple times in theaters yeah and I'll probably see it plenty of times with my kids too sure definitely I, I likewise I love how Toy Story manages to always be about something more and I love how Toy Story 4 particularly is about the the the, the 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 way your life changes. You know, you, you basically live sections of your life, the young section of your life, the the the, the midsection. You know, you 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 hang out with your friends. You're in college or in high school. It's all about friends and building your social um, circle and 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 doing that kind of thing. But then you transition to a wife. You transition to kids. Not that I'm familiar with any of that. Sure, but, sure. but you certainly and. What's so interesting about this movie is that's what this movie represents. It's a freaking kids movie, but it represents the idea of I'm I'm going to move on from this portion of my life where I dedicated so much of my time to my friends and in this case, you know, the the children, the the, the relationships in, in our lives, and I'm going to move on and I'm going to settle down, you know. This movie basically gives Woody a child to take care of in Forky, you mm-hmm. know. It gives him a child and then you know, a, a wife, a spouse, and and finding new purpose in in a lived life. You know, yep. And that's really beautiful. So that was your five. Five was Toy Story four. Number five for me was Parasite, uh, South Korean film. Bong Joon Ho, um, one of my favorite foreign film directors, directed Okja, directed Snowpiercer, directed The Host, and this is again. Almost like a culmination of everything that he has done in his life as well. He's always made movies about social inequality, about economic inequality. I mean, you just look at Snowpiercer. You know, look at Okja. Um, those are, are parables of that type of thing. And Parasite just takes it one step further. It is a comedy. It is a thriller. It is a parable about wealth and the way that, it, you know, the, 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 the pursuit of wealth can drive people insane and I love everything about it. I love the performances. I love how weird it is and how weird the characters are. I love how it keeps unfolding itself and it keeps, you know, it, it, the you know, it, the movie's funny, but then it starts getting like really intense and really nerve-wracking and really, you know, um there's the, the 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 tension in the movie is incredible and then it just goes absolutely insane. It goes it just goes into full chaotic mode. Um and again, it's a smaller scale movie. It's a movie about a lower class family in South Korea who literally lives in an apartment under the street 
you know, they have uh, drunk people coming and taking a piss right by their window. And they are they slowly through the long con and through lies and deceit slowly become member by member employed by a richer family, you know, and take advantage of this new lifestyle that they've latched themselves onto much like a parasite. And maintaining that con is so interesting, but then they find the the secret hidden basement under the rich person's Which I don't, house. I haven't seen, so I don't want to hear the spoiler. I'm and I'm sure I'm most say, people on here have not watched it This is how I sell it, it. This is how I sell it, is that this happens, they find this basement, and then shit starts getting really weird. <laughs> so that's all I'm going to say I'm excited about the to movie. See it. It's phenomenal. It's, it's one of my favorite movies of the year. That's why I have it at number five, Parasite. All right, number four for me, one that you and I actually saw together and we did a podcast about and we saw it early, which is Knives Out. Knives Out. I have it at number three. So huge Knives Out fan. I always love the Clue movie. I love any whodunit movie. Mm -hmm. And I think what Ryan Johnson does, not only in taking a fresh approach to the whodunit, so kind of turns the sequence of events kind of upside down he and like kind of the way whodunits on, on top of each other exactly he, he, the way that he layers that the performances by all the people that are in it from daniel craig to um oh chris um, evans evans there captain you go america? chris evans yep captain america um to everybody else that's in the film and i won't go through everybody but it's it's phenomenally acted it's phenomenally put together the set pieces are great like just it looks great yeah the flow of it is great. Yeah. Um, I I loved it. That's why it's number four for me. It's almost the perfect. It's number three for me. It's almost the perfect movie for a family with like young adults and teenagers to get together and be like, this is a movie we all love. Yeah. You know, it's not particularly overly violent. It's not overly sexual. There's some naughty words in it and whatever. It's one of the few PG-13 movies to get away with multiple F-bombs, which I really respect um, <laughs> because there's so few movies who are able to do that. Like, I think American President is one, and there's maybe a couple of other, but um, I think Oceans actually gets away with it, too, at least gets away with one. But it is, it is like you said, it's not the first whodunit ever made. It's not the last whodunit ever made. It owes a lot to many of the murder mysteries that have been duplicated and replicated and remade but it's the way ryan johnson finds fresh angles and fresh approaches to make you guess and make it rewarding either not just some bs reveal at the end everything matches up in place and as you said the cast top to bottom is absolutely stacked from daniel craig all the way down to anna de armas who's phenomenal in it christopher mm -hmm. Plummer, everybody lakeith stanfield Everybody in it is is amazing, and you know we'll put a pin in it there. But you should, if you're interested in Knives Out at all, definitely listen to our podcast about it. It's definitely one of the most fun times I had in a movie theater Absolutely. this entire year. Um, so yeah, so I have you had Knives Out at number four, yep. I had it at number three. My number four is The Irishman, and I am very glad, David, that we got to go see The Irishman in theaters because it's a very long movie. It is. And it certainly requires focus. You know, um, there has been a longstanding conversation on film Twitter um, ahead of time. There was this, this evolving conversation about how 
you know, go out and see The Irishman, you know, in movie theaters or this release schedule is ridiculous or whatever you have it. And then when it was released on Netflix, people were like, well, I don't have time to watch it. So I'm going to watch it in four parts. And it's and, and listen, I understand some people, they live very hectic lives. You just don't have time for these types of things. I get it. But I would argue that most of those people who said they don't have time, they binge binge watch Stranger Things in a weekend. Like you can find the time, dedicate the time, dedicate the energy to focus yourself on The Irishman, which is very much a culmination of everything Martin Scorsese has done. I think it's a picture that that he could have only ever made at this point in his career. You know, he's bringing in all the heavy hitters: Keitel, Pesci, Pacino, De Niro, and um, that. And that's just there's more. There's more, and there's more. But it is such an amazing story and an amazing long-form story about one man's life and the dedication and the respect and the loyalty, you know, and then the repercussions of all of that. The efforts that he takes to keep his family safe, the efforts that he takes to build his own um, standing amongst his peers, all of which to give his family a better life, a safer life, but it's almost a Greek parable where you're trying so hard to achieve something that you can never enjoy, you know? And and a lot of people, David, I know you're one of them, would argue that the, the last 30 minutes or so could probably be trimmed down a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, I think those are the most important moments of the film where you realize that and you see that and you see how age has worn on all of these people involved and for what, you know? And that's, I just... Find absolutely fascinating. Um, I know it, it didn't make it, your short it was, list. It was uh, it was it was one of the harder ones for me to place because it's a movie that, without a doubt, I recognize how well it was put together. Um, obviously, sure. Scorsese is a master. That's that's who he is, and and this movie is is no different. Um, the performances overall, I think, are are really really good. I Pesci's my favorite of the performances, so but good. all of them are really great. I like um, how the story unfolds from the the way that they tell the story, and we talk about that a lot in our podcast that we did on it. But I like kind of the order in which we get things revealed and the way that it approaches that. It's so well it's, edited. Its storytelling is so. Good. And so if this was a if if this was a list of me making the best films, like it will be arguably if I was picking best films for best picture, it's it's definitely I would say in the top three at a minimum. Sure. So it's not that I don't recognize that, it's that it is freaking long. This and is it's, a list it's of not, our favorite films. It's not an easy watch. Like like I was thinking about how like I probably need to watch it again. Yeah. To truly like appreciate it and and accurately rank it, get the kids out of the but house. But man, the idea of watching that movie again is just difficult. Like it's hard <laughs> to want to go and sit down and watch three and a half hours, especially because you know it's not the most action packed. Like the first, no. the I would say the first hour is has a good amount of pace and action to it sure but after that it slows down a lot it does and it crawls to the finish in those last 30 minutes and and to your point i understand what it's doing in those last 30 minutes and i can understand 
the the storytelling perspective and the point it's getting across in those last 30 minutes but it does not make itself very friendly to the the average moviegoer from that standpoint I get to, it listen I get through. it so I get it but I definitely appreciate it and it's it's a phenomenal film I love the Irishman that's my number 4 and number 3 for you was Knives Out yep, number, number three, 3 for, for me, me is Avengers Endgame All right that's my number 2 I have a feeling we're going to start Getting closer <laughs> on what our movies are. So Avengers Endgame, obviously the culmination of a fantastic you know, franchise mm-hmm. um, that will continue, but obviously not be so much drawn to this Infinity Gauntlet series and, sure. and everything that led the to Infinity that. Infinity Saga. I, I, I just don't know how you could have done it any better. Um, you could nitpick a couple, you know, maybe a little bit of it. Um, eh. But there's not a lot. There's not a lot to complain about. And, um, you know, in other years, it probably would be my favorite movie. Um, but again, Jojo Rabbit being number two for me, for whatever reason at this point in my life and at this point, looking back on this year, um, is slightly ahead of it. But again, I, I need to revisit Avengers Endgame. But the action's amazing. Uh, there's heart to it, which obviously you don't always expect right. from superhero right. um, movies. Um you know, it's it's hard not to get emotional there at the end. Well, especially, especially when uh, you've spent 12, 11, 12 years with these characters. Yeah, and, and it's... grown with them. Exactly. So um, similar to, you know, Star Wars, but this would be, I would argue, a lot better version of, you know, kind of putting a pin or, or closing the book on a on a chapter of... Storytelling. Of storytelling. So storytelling. It was it was it was awesome. So. If if there is one thing we learned in twenty nineteen is that it is hard to end a story satisfyingly. Um it is hard to end a story in a way that that ties it all together. It's difficult to do, especially when you're doing long form storytelling. Think about your favorite television shows going on and on and on. Think about how many stuck the landing, how you met your how I met your mother. The stick the landing? Many people would argue no. Game of Thrones, stick the landing. Many people would argue no. There are a lot of television shows where the finale wasn't the best episode out there. There are a lot of movie series. There are a lot of franchises where the the final entry oftentimes doesn't hit every note. This year alone, we saw a couple. But Avengers Endgame at number two for me is that culmination of 11 plus years of storytelling of showing audiences that they can be rewarded for investing the time, investing the energy, the emotions in these characters and learning more about them and seeing them grow, seeing them going through trials and tribulations and things like that. And it also shows a way that fan service can be done in, in an effective way. There's, there's all this talk about fan service lately, and I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. But Avengers Endgame is just an, 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 such an impressive monumental achievement in storytelling regardless of whether you think it's dumb that a guy in red white and blue is running around or there's a big purple monster wanting to destroy the world sure regardless of any of that you know what it represents is something that i think is genuinely impressive and something that i don't know if we'll ever see again with disney plus coming out and streaming changing the way that that entertainment is being consumed I don't know if we'll ever get an event like that again. It's the biggest movie of all time. Uh, I'm really, I'm not excited to see what will come next as the biggest movie of all time, but I am excited to see Avengers Endgame 
stay the biggest movie of all time for a while. Um, unless James Cameron sold his soul to the devil again and Avatar 2 just loses <laughs> its mind. So that was your number three, my number two. Both of our number twos we already talked about. Obviously, Avengers Endgame. And for you, Jojo Rabbit. David, by process of elimination, there is only one movie that I think can be your number one that is also my number one. What would that be, sir? What, what's your number one? Once Upon a Time in Once Hollywood. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Boy, boy, you want to talk about a movie, David, that finds a way to celebrate what filmmaking and storytelling not only meant to Quentin Tarantino, but meant to so many other people of multiple generations. Not only is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a really sweet, heartfelt tribute to the people who tell those stories, to the way those stories are told, to the industry that provides those stories, but it also uses the power of filmmaking to rewrite history in a way that only Tarantino can. He, he recognizes the power of film and uses that power like a magic trick to take a real-life event, the Manson family murders in Hollywood, and real-life people, the, the perpetrators of those murders, as well as Sharon Tate and the, and the other people who were murdered that night, and he uses the power of film to rewrite history so that in this movie... Uh, spoilers, obviously, for <laughs> for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. In this movie, through the power of film, the Manson family gets their comeuppance in a big, bad way. Some people argue maybe too big, too bad. Not me. Loved it. Absolutely batshit insane and, and phenomenal for it. Not only does the evil, the real-world evil, get their just desserts, but also the victims, Sharon Tate, her unborn baby, all of those other victims, in this world, they get to live fulfilling lives, full lives, with careers. Rick Dalton himself, a fictional character, gets to continue living his life with those characters. And I don't know of anything more beautiful, man. I really don't. And all of that in a movie where Brad Pitt fights Bruce Lee. So, that I mean, that's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for me. What about you, man? Talk, talk a little bit about why you love this so much. I think so much of it is just like a tribute to a lot of what we love about Hollywood and films, not that it's not without its flaws and things that you dislike about it. Um, but you can just feel Quentin Tarantino's kind of love or, you know, kind of tribute to Hollywood and his belief and what shaped him. And I think that a lot, when we do lists, when we talk about things, best ofs, all that kind of stuff. And this is what we preach all the time on this is it's yours. It's your own. Like, just because you think differently than others doesn't mean you're wrong and they're right or you're right. you're right and they're wrong like it's all preference and i think when someone does something that they're truly passionate about it sh comes out in it and i think you see that in this and you see his passion for these types of films for this era of hollywood and and everything that goes with that and so uh, that alone made it super memorable but you know it's just such a fun thing. I think that's what I loved. One of the things I loved about Inglorious Bastards, kind of that revisionist history. Same thing, uses the power um, of film to change history. Exactly. And so I think it's just fun and satisfying to see those types of things happen. Um, 
and so yeah, I mean that's a lot of what you said in in addition to that is is why it's my number one. I love it, man. I, I love it's gonna be it's gonna be hard to top, but we both got Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as our number one favorite movie of 2019. And honestly, it wasn't even that close for me. Like I love Endgame. I love Knives Out. There was no other movie that I thought of that could be number one in my opinion. Um, so I, that's all really that you can say about it. Uh, we definitely want to talk about the decade. We definitely want to go over our, our, deca- our decade long list. Obviously, this is our supersized United States of Film 2019 episode. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick little break. What's up, good movie buddies? Before we continue, I want to remind everybody that you can get regular episodes of this podcast delivered to you for free just by hitting the subscribe button or following us wherever you're listening from. So take a second, literally one second, hit the button, write a review, give us a rating, share the popcorn diet with any of your good movie buddies. We also want to remind you that you can check us out on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash the popcorn diet and consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Not only is it going to help us, you know, improve the podcast, not only is it going to help us keep the lights on, but it gets you early access to regular episodes. It gets you exclusive patron only episodes like franchise refills and more. So don't forget to check us out at patreon.com slash the popcorn diet. Of course, we don't want you to forget that you can follow us on social media at The Popcorn Diet. And last but certainly not least, you can find all of our latest regular episodes, articles, reviews, our top 10 list, my best of the decade list on our website, popcorndietpodcast.com. But David, we got a, we got 10 years to talk about. I, t- I said at the beginning, this was going to be a long episode. We um, do. That being said, we're not going to go in as much detail over no, every pick. I could. For but this, because this will end up being a 10-hour podcast. 10-hour podcast. And hey, keep it going, Ain't man. no just, one got time for that. Just start and stop whenever you're whenever you're in the car. That's how I treat podcasts. I don't have time for it. That's true. You don't have time <laughs> for it. Um, before we get into the actual listing of our top 10 films of the decade, uh, number one, we won't get too far into it, but you and I made very long lists. We did. Uh, 100 some odd movies of the last decade. You can find my long list on our website. Um, David just put together, I literally sat and watched him put together his long list. Wasn't your fault. It was lost in a, in a, in a terrible incident that was outside of your, someone stole my laptop, but let's not go down that Merry rabbit Christmas. hole. We need you to keep you happy. <laughs> We've never had an angry David Melhorn on this podcast. So maybe I'll just keep poking at it and, and really get the, get the, the angry Canadian to come out. But before we do any of that, we, David, you presented to me the opportunity for us to name certain best of the decade, you know, filmmakers, actors, actresses, and things like that. So we, the first one you asked me was best director of the decade. Um, I obviously wrote down a bunch. Of course. Um, because, you know, you can argue that Taika Waititi had an amazing year. Ryan Coogler, uh, Ava DuVernay, like Greta Gerwig, like those guys had an amazing decade of growing and expanding to household names, filmmakers that people are excited to see what they're doing next of. Paul Thomas Anderson is another one who just mm-hmm. had an insane year. Um, decade. Decade, excuse me. I'm going to do that a lot. Yep. Uh, Denny Villeneuve, who, whose name I always screw up, and I probably just did then. Another yep. amazing year. But for me, my top director of the decade is Christopher Nolan. He started the decade with a movie that set the standard for movies for a decade. He wrapped up his his trilogy, his Batman trilogy. Mm-hmm. 
he made a really complex space sci-fi film with Interstellar, and then he made maybe the most intense war film ever made in Dunkirk. Yeah. Like, Christopher Nolan is probably, of that age, like our, our greatest filmmaker right now. Like, And again, people can make the argument for Paul Thomas Anderson. Scorsese's still up there, those types of guys. Yeah. But Christopher Nolan is somebody who I will always be there for his next movie. Yeah. So that's my pick for best director of the decade. What about you? I had the same. I had Christopher Nolan. I think the other ones I considered, um, you mentioned a few of them, but I think Tarantino is in the conversation as Certainly. well. Um, he's another director like Christopher Nolan. If Bastards would have come out, because Bastards came out in 09, right? 09, yeah. If Bastards would come out in 10, it, it might be Tarantino. Sure. And I think, you know, if there's a commonality between them is that they're selective, right? They... They're not coming out with movies every year. Two, three movies over the decade. Yeah, they're not coming out with movies every year. They're they're very selective, and their stories are original for the most part. Yeah. I mean, Dunkirk, you could argue, is obviously telling the story sure. of you know something that actually happened in real life. Mm-hmm. But Inception's wholly re- original, Interstellar's wholly original. Um, Batman obviously is a, a adaption, but it's or adaptation, but it also was an original take. Like he didn't follow straight from yeah, the comics what choose, happened. He picked yeah. and chose in that from that standpoint. And I think that's why those were probably the top two for me. Um, that it became tough between, like you said, if Inglorious Bastards was in there, it would be you know really difficult to yeah. pick between the two. But um, I also went with Christopher Nolan in there. There's a couple that I think came on really well at the end. Yeah. That if we were doing like 2015 to 2025, sure. In five years, maybe this answer changes. Sure. Because you have maybe. Uh, one of the ones that for me, um, and gosh, now I'm going to blank on his name, but uh, Hell or High Water, Wind River. Um, oh, my God. Taylor Sheridan. Ta- he wrote Taylor, Taylor Sheridan. Sh- he, wrote Taylor Sh- he wrote Hell or High Water, but he directed Wind River. Yeah. But Taylor Sheridan's another guy. I'm He's saying. another one that we're basically Sicario. in for everything that he, he does now. Sicario as well. So. Yeah, and we didn't do Best Writers, but obviously there's some overlap in some of that because a lot sure. of these directors work with the same writers as well. So. Marcus, uh, yeah, we won't get into writers, but Christopher Marcus, um, Stephen McFeely wrote all of the Captain America movies and the last two Avengers movies, and that's yeah. pretty freaking impressive. That's not bad. Uh, actor of the decade. Again, I, uh, arguments could be made <laughs> for uh, Mahershala. Like Mahershala. Two, two Came Oscar, on really strong. Two, two Oscar wins. Yeah. That's not easy to do. Nope. Um, I got Christian Bale, obviously, you know, just an incredible year. Joaquin Phoenix. But as you will Christoph see, Christoph Waltz was Christoph another one. Christoph Waltz, another one. Yeah, yep. great point. Christoph Waltz is another one. But as you'll see in my top 10 movies of the decade, for me, there's only one answer, and it's DiCaprio. Yep. It's, it's Leonardo DiCaprio. Like, talk about a guy who. Finally got his Oscar. Finally got his Oscar, but now is, again, much like those directors. Whatever he's doing, I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. What's Leo? Oh, what are you doing next, Leo? I'm interested. It I ne- might not see it. Like if you do another J. Edgar, like it, uh, well, and it never, it never feels like DiCaprio's cashing a check. There's no. and there's nothing he's wrong. Selective. There's no, there's nothing wrong with those actors that do choose to just no. cash a check. That's that's perfectly fine. But it it feels like he's very selective in what he does. Right. Um, but at the same time. One of the things that I think that makes DiCaprio so great is that 
it's not like he's always the same character in every film. Right. Like he's all over the place. I mean, in this last decade, we had what was Revenant was this year, this decade. Revenant was this. It was. We had Wolf of Wall Street. Inception. We Revenant, had Inception. Wolf of Wall Street. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like those four alone. Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah. That's so, crazy. Pretty, pretty awesome decade for DiCaprio. Uh, I, I think actress was a little bit harder to decide on. Um, who'd you have for actress? So again, much like all my other ones, I, I had a list here. I still am not sure. Um, Definitely wasn't as easy as I mean. I feel like DiCaprio kind of rose to the top pretty quickly pretty, pretty for quickly. me. Um, but actress, projects. actress was a lot tougher. So I had four. I had. Um, did you put Meryl Streep on there? Like I the actually Academy? didn't put Meryl Streep. I actually <laughs> had five. Excuse me. Uh, I had Lupita. Mm-hmm. Uh, Twelve Years a Slave wins an Oscar. Yep. Us. Star Wars. Like, come on now. Yep. That's pretty impressive. Emma Stone. Same mm-hmm. thing. Oscar, top liner, movie yeah. star. Saoirse Ronan. Uh, really came on strong at the between end. Between me, it's, it's very, came on very strong at the end. But t- to me, it is coin toss between these two. Jennifer Lawrence and Amy Adams. Yep. And I lean towards Jennifer Lawrence because she had it all. She had the franchises. Mm-hmm. She had the Oscars, multiple nominations, win. Uh, she had it all. And... Uh, Obviously, she's like, uh, you know, she's been more selective with her projects now, yeah. um, f- probably for the best after we get the stink of X-Men washed off of her. Um, but hey, easy. Excuse me. The stink of Dark Phoenix washed I was gonna off say, of her. Thank you. Um, and a, a little bit of all apocalypse. <laughs> and a little bit of apocalypse. But I think Jennifer Lawrence, you look at the stats, just the numbers, and Jennifer Lawrence edges out Amy Adams because Amy Adams is just getting nomination, 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 nomination. She's turning into our new Glenn Close. Just quality after quality after quality. But to me, it's Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, it's kind of our modern day, like, I feel like, kind of like Glenn Close and Meryl Streep. And that's probably not a great comparison, but like, one seems to win the awards and one seems to just get nominated just a get lot. Just get nominated, yeah. Um, and there may be a better example of that, but those are the first two that came to mind. Uh, my first instinct when I thought of it was Amy Adams, but then when I started to do research, it does feel like it's Jennifer Lawrence. Um, as you mentioned, she didn't just have one franchise. She also had Hunger Games, yeah. too, yeah. which was massive. Yeah. So not only was she getting the the big Oscar movies, but she was also getting the franchise money as well. Yeah. And she actually won her Oscars, too, whereas Amy Adams has more or less been more kind of on the Oscar side. Like Mm -hmm. the more memorable movies that you have from Amy Adams were mostly all kind of Academy type movies. Her franchise was the DCU, which. Yeah. Um, So she did have a little bit of that, but not as successful. So I think she, they had very similar decades. Just one kind of was very successful. Not like as much. in all, and the other was just slightly less successful. Just not so, as much. yeah, I think it's Jennifer Lawrence as well. We had, a, you know, you proposed this to me, and we both thought it was a shoe in, and I think the answer is still to be true. But the best Hollywood studio, which studio had the best decade, right? And I was like, oh, it's Disney, unquestionably, it's Disney. But it's not as simple as that. You did, you did a little bit more research. Yeah, so I went year by year, just kind of looking straight at box office, not looking at like you know, ratings right, of movies and all that kind awards. of stuff. Um, 
and we go by awards and like you know if, if we're going recency bias you know 2019 Disney right now has 33% of the box office. The top five put it, movies. Put it in perspective. The next closest is Warner Brothers at 14%. Uh, 2018, they had 20, ended with 26%. Next closest was 16% at Warner Brothers. 2017, 21%. Warner Brothers was 18 so gap was a little bit closer. Mm-hmm. 2016, uh, which I believe was the year of Force Awakens. I think so. Is yeah. 26%. Warner Brothers was 16%. Or maybe it was 15. Maybe it was 15. Um, But those are the only four years of this decade that Disney won the box office. Won the box office. Um, Universal won it in 2015 with 22%. Disney was close behind with 20. Uh, 20th Century Fox won it in 2014 with 17%. Disney was close behind with 15%. Uh, 2013 was Warner Brothers at 17. Disney at just under 16%. 2012, it was actually third place behind Sony at 16, Warner Brothers at 15. They were at 14. Uh, 2011, it was actually Disney was actually fourth. Paramount won that year at 19%. Warner Brothers was 17, Sony was 12, and Disney was uh, 12, but mm-hmm. just a little bit under that. And then 2010, it was third place at 13.98% uh, behind Warner Brothers at 17 and Paramount at 16. Funny. So funny you want to you want to know why can we make any guesses at why guess who owned the distribution rights of marvel before disney did paramount paramount yep those were the the first couple of movies were paramount distributed movies Mm -hmm. they were marvel made but paramount distributed yeah iron man 2 credit credit where credit's due a lot of people are pushing on bob Iger right now for galaxy's edge for the rise of skywalker what have you but that guy buying up Lucasfilm, buying up Marvel, buying up Fox. Yep. That's those are some big boy moves. Yeah. That have clearly paid off. Yeah. So, so Disney's still the best studio of the decade by you, that measure. You gotta give them the win, not only because I think if you went overall and I didn't do the math, overall for the decade, it's not really close between who made the most money. Sure. But also the fact that they made those acquisitions and the right. um, and this doesn't even factor in the fact that now they have um, Fox. Yeah. And they haven't even the, had the opportunity and to all start the, using that. all the um, IP that goes with Fox now. I mean, it's it's weird going on Disney Plus and seeing The Simpsons on there. It's very weird. It's so very weird. It'll be, uh, it's, it's prob- the gap's probably only going to widen. Yeah. I mean, for better or for worse. I mean, yeah. for me... Stamp me with the Mickey Mouse ears, man. Disney's okay. I welcome my Disney overlord. Like, whatever. Um. <laughs> as, as long as we keep getting the quality that we've been getting, I'm all for it. Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I am as well. Um, now, the last one is a little difficult. You you brought this one to me because I love movie scores. You're the expert. I love movie scores. I put a playlist on Spotify every year of that year's best scores from film, TV, video games, movie trailers, whatever. And so you asked me the best composer of the year. And I went by pure stats, okay? And it's it's not easy to do because pure stats-wise, it's Alexander Desplat without question. That guy did 45 movies and won two Oscars in the last decade. That's crazy, okay? Now, if you're going by uh, rate of success, 
John Williams did nine scores and got six nominations, no wins. But that is a, what is that? That's a 60... 66%, 65% rate, uh, 66.67 repeating Yep. rate of success based on score to nomination. You got Justin Hurwitz who did three scores, but they are pretty memorable. Whiplash, La La Land, and First Man. He also won an Oscar out of those as well. Hans Zimmer did 35 scores, had three Oscar nominations. Ludwig Goransson did 18 scores, one Oscar win. Uh, the first to uh, superhero score to win an Oscar since Superman, and of course scored the Mandalorian. And David, this might shock you, but Newman's on my list. All right, Thomas Newman, yeah. not, uh, not not Randy, not no Randy Newman. No, N- no Randy Newman on this list. No, I will not put Randy Newman it's on this list. But Thomas Newman had twenty-one scores. And four Oscar nominations as well. If I had to pick one, it would still be Hans. Hans Zimmer, again, the stuff that he has done has influenced movie scores from Inception to Batman Pirates. to that type of thing. He's also he, he was also at Coachella. Like, how many other film composers can, can say that? Yep. How many film composers tour with the film com- compositions that they've written? None? So Not as, a whole lot. As much as I love Ludwig, as much as I love John Williams, I think Hans Zimmer's the the composer of the decade. All right. So, with I, all of that being said, I'm not as knowledgeable. If I was going to go one, it was only going to be the only reason I was leaning towards John Williams mm-hmm. was because three Star Wars movies, the rebirth of Star <laughs> yeah, Wars. So exactly. I mean, he also did War Horse. You know, he did the Post. He yeah. He did. Uh, he actually didn't do Bridge of Spies because he was working on Star Wars. It was uh, Spielberg, because John Williams was working on Star Wars movies, for the first time, I think, since The Color Purple, used different composers. Mm. For Bridge of Spies, he used Thomas Newman, and it was nominated for an Oscar. And for Ready Player One, he used Alan Silvestri, and it should have been nominated for an Oscar because that score is dope. Um, But just another interesting fun fact that I know out of the top of my head. So, David, this decade has brought us a lot. It's brought us what some may consider... The downward spiral of comedy, the re-emergence of horror, it's brought us superheroes, it's brought us Oscar bait movies that no one's even talking about anymore, that one best picture, it's brought us all kinds of things. But we went through our long lists, and like you said, we're not going to spend as much time on this, but we have picked 10 movies to represent our favorite films of the decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, we listed why and how we came to these conclusions earlier in the podcast. And so I don't I mean, there are movies that didn't make my list that that, you know, I'll, I'll talk about as I go through the 10. Um, but I mean, let's just get into it, dude. Let's All just right. crank through it. You want to start? What's your number 10? My number 10. Of the decade? We just talked about so we don't need to re talk about it. But is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. OK. All right. It's very good, and we, yeah, we did just talk about it. Um, everything you want to know about that, rewind like 10 minutes. Yep. Um, for me, number 10 was How to Train Your Dragon, the original. And I did that because it of what it represents. And again, this is my list, it's my rules, so I'm going to do it as I want. But 
there has been a very consistent quality through that How to Train Your Dragon trilogy. It allowed its characters to grow over time, which is something that most animated films don't do, both physically, mentally, emotionally, all those types of things, you know? Um, and, and I really was impressed by that. It's funny. It's thrilling. It's, it's heartfelt. And there's been great animated movies that have come out. There's been the Toy Story movies, three and four. There's Inside Out, which is insane. Um, Rango, which is one of my favorites. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is incredible. But How to Train Your Dragon, again, as it represents that entire trilogy of films, of a very simple concept of a boy and his dog. In this case, it's a boy and his dragon. Something that's been done plenty of times over. But, boy, do they do it really good. And John Powell, who is somebody who I didn't have on the list for composers, his score for this trilogy is maybe one of the most underappreciated scores in the last 20 years. I'm not sure. But it's phenomenal. It was nominated for an Oscar, so I can't say it was fully underappreciated. And, and what we'll realize in Rick's list here is that he basically took something from each category. I he wanted diversity in his categories. list of 10. Yeah, I think you should give your categories. So, so the way I mean, I shamed you into You did. into second guessing and you decided to stick with it. with it. So to me, your top 10 should be your top 10 favorite movies and while I don't right. think How to Train Your Dragon if you were to just go off of your favorite would actually be in your top 10. You decided you wanted to approach it a little bit differently, have some categories yes. and check some boxes. So we need to know your boxes as so, we go through. So the, the reason I did it this way, and David, I think the way that I wrote it with the categories in the beginning was actually incorrect because I did pick these movies as my favorite movies. But then I realized that there are other types of those movies that are runners-up, you know, that are movies that are of, of, of equal quality, but just when I think about them. When I, again, when I think about it, what pops into my head? Okay, what pops into my heart? So for this, this obviously I listed off several animated films. This is the the animated film sort of category, if you will, categorizing everything, putting it all together, and listing those out. That's why I put How to Train Your Dragon at number ten. All right, number nine for me is Mission Impossible Fallout. Okay. So this was from last year. Yep. Phenomenal. Um, I did. We're not going to go through each year individually, but it was actually my. Uh, second favorite movie from that year um, to another one that will be on my list later. Uh, but it's just, I mean, the action is is phenomenal. There's so many memorable scenes from that movie. The pace is just phenomenal. It's edge of your seat. That movie flies through. Like so I rewatched good. it not too long ago, and I was like, where did the last two hours of my life go? It was like it just zoomed through. Um it's everything you love about Mission Impossible's taken up like ten notches. Ten notch, like, and it's I just love it. It's one of the most memorable movies for me from this last decade. That's on my. I actually, we should ask each other if we have it on our long list as well. Did you have How to Train Your Dragon I did on your not. long list? You did not. I had Mission Impossible Fallout on mine. Like, I agree, it's one of the best action film sequels made in the last ten years, maybe ever. Um, number nine for me is Whiplash, Damien Chazelle. Again, just just smashing into the scene um, with Whiplash. An incredible acted, an incredibly tense film. You want to talk about Fallout being like a tense film? This is another tense film. This is one of those films that made me sweaty. There are a lot of films 
that I've seen over the course of 10 years that made me literally sweat in the movie theater. And that's my kind of category for this one was all the movies that made me sweat. And oddly enough, David, they're all single word titles. Movies like Gravity, like Sicario, Dunkirk, Parasite. Like those are movies that make you absolutely sweaty and tense with their filmmaking. But I think Whiplash is absolutely the best. Just an incredible coming out party for Damien Chazelle. J.K. Simmons, Miles Teller, the cat and mouse game of greatness that they play is, is my number nine. Is one of my favorite movies of the decade. Uh, did you have that on your short list? I did not. It was my second favorite movie of 2014. Okay. But it did not make my top ten. It's a phenomenal movie, and like you said, it's it's one of those that is just intense from the, sure. the start of the movie. And it's definitely a memorable one for me, but um, did not make my top ten. Okay. But it uh, made your, but it made the long list. It made the long list. Okay. So I did. You and I approached the long list a little bit differently. You yeah. did a top one hundred for the ish yeah. for the decade. I went through and did year by year top tens, um, it, with some honorable mentions on each of them, which maybe we'll put up somewhere. So my list is out there too. But number eight for me for the decade was the Social Network. I'm so good. A, I'm a sucker for Aaron Sorkin. Um, it was actually my. Let's see. Second favorite movie of 2010. So it comes all the way back to 2010. Sure. And, you know, the dialogue's amazing. It's obviously, you know, a super interesting story, something that I think probably everybody connects to in some way. Yeah. Um, even if it's as simple as just you have Facebook. <laughs> right. But it's always cool to see kind of the background story, even if some of it is, you know, kind of fantasy or you know kind of not quite the exact story Um, but I just really enjoyed the movie I love all the dialogue there's so many memorable scenes so many memorable quotes as you would expect from an Aaron Sorkin movie right and you know this is everything that's great about Aaron Sorkin comes out in this movie yeah it's on my short list it's phenomenal or on my long list excuse me Uh, it's phenomenal number eight for me and this may be the most controversial entry in the entire thing Um, I wanted to represent comedy. I picked comedy. And when I was thinking of, and when I looked at the comedies, I tried to think what one made me laugh the hardest. And again, this is when I look back at the titles. What one made me laugh the hardest? What one did I think was the best executed? And there are, again, I think comedy really has taken a dip. Comedies are not that popular anymore. They're not making the money they used to. Um, they're, They're not really reaching the critical acclaim that they used to. And the one that I picked is actually a perfect example of it. It's a movie that made very little money. It Not a lot of people saw it. But I genuinely think it is the best comedy of the decade. And that's The Lonely Island, pop star, never stop, never stopping. Andy Samberg, his whole crew. It is a genuinely hilarious send-up uh, mockumentary of celebrity of uh music musicians you know i watch the grammys all the time and i'm just like how are we letting musicians get away with being this weird and nobody's talking about it you know showing up in meat dresses and you know what what they do and this sends all of that up so well the 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 cameos that they have in here are insane the, the level of celebrity that they got to cameo in this movie is insane. And there are a lot of other comedies. I wanted to put the Jump Street movies. They're on my long list. 
what we do in the shadows on my long list, bridesmaids on my long list. Honestly, the only one that came close to being the comedy that I think that I love the most was MacGruber, which is, again, an insane – the idea that those are on my list is insane. I recognize that. But I challenge anybody listening, if you like comedy, watch Popstar, watch MacGruber. And if you don't find them funny, just tell me. Just let me know, all right? I just want to know because I put my seal of approval on Popstar as my number eight of the decade. And I stand by it. And that's all I have to say about that. I'm not going to say anything. Thank you. It's your list. You, you, You do you. You have shown me everything that you felt silently over this podcast medium, <laughs> judging me with your head shakes and your stares. And it's fine. I'm comfortable. Number seven for me is a movie that I love rewatching. It's a movie that I went and saw, I think, two or three times in the theaters, which is difficult now with kids. Um, yeah. And being married. But it comes from, let's see what year it was. It was 2015. It was my favorite movie of the year. And that is The Big Short. Okay. Again, kind of plays in a large part similar, some similar aspects of what The Social Network is. But to me, it was, it was a fun way to tell a probably kind of depressing story sure. as well as pretty difficult topic to like consume as like someone who's not into finance and all of those aspects of it. Sure. If you don't know things about mortgages and bonds and all that kind of stuff, like it told it in a really informative, accessible way way Mm -hmm. and something that was very memorable. And it's a movie that if it's on, I'm watching for some specific scenes, like when um, Gosling 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 talks about uh, and the Jenga. Yep. (laughs) Like, Jenga it's, pieces. It's so I'm good. watching it for that. Um, and there's a number of other scenes. That's obviously my favorite, but there's a number of other scenes. And it's just one that, you know, it's been on Netflix for a while off and on. And I'll watch it randomly when I have some time. I don't need to watch the whole thing. And um, I just love that movie. I love it, too. It, it, it made my long list uh, for sure. Um, it's it's so good. It's and it's uh, so oddly rewatchable for a movie like that. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, number seven was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. As we said, we we said as much as we could about it. But Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, number seven from my decade list. It's so good. It's just so good. Uh, I, I said everything about it that I wanted to say before, though. So, what's your number six? Number six for me is Black Panther. Nice. Which was my favorite film of 2018 which was a loaded year. Uh, But, you know, the things that I like about it, to me, it introduced us. Obviously, Michael B. Jordan was amazing in that film. Sure. I think, to me, he's by far the most memorable villain. Like, you could talk about... um, I mean, you talk about Thanos. Thanos. You could talk about about a lot of the other villains. And we've had great ones, and we've had great... But, like, from a performance standpoint, and actually giving in, like, a memorable performance and not just being a memorable bad guy um michael b jordan was amazing in that um i also think it was like a breath of fresh air and also kind of pivoted people's perspective on superhero movies both from the fact that you know the acclaim and the recognition it got um from critics from the academy from all those different aspects of it i think is a step in the right direction as well as i think it raised the bar from like what you can do with a superhero movie. And you could argue sure. that 
that was already done in some of the earlier films, but that to me is the most distinct of all the Marvel movies Mm -hmm. that like really is pointed about, okay, we're going to tell this superhero story, but we're also going to, you know, tell some very specific, you know, lessons, some right about colonialism, about um, birthright, about isolationism, all of that. And to me, as I look back at the Avengers movies and I love, all the movies that we've got out of them, that is the one that sticks out the most of like just being very distinct and like memorable. Sure. Like I can see that whole, I can probably see all the movies because of the amount of times we've seen them. But like <laughs> that one is definitely the most memorable, the most impactful sure. on all the different levels Perf- for me. Performances, music, design, costumes, everything. Oh it's, yeah. It's fired on all cylinders. It's on, it's on my, uh, it's definitely on my long list. Speaking of movies talking about things whilst being another thing, my number six is Get Out. Um, again, Jordan, you want to talk about another talent that blew up and showed up on the scene like Jordan Peele did? I, man, you come out, your first written and directorial debut, and you win an Oscar for screenplay. You tell this really, really... Um, genuinely creepy horror thriller whilst also being very funny and having these tiny little details in it that tell a larger story about racism in America, about the hidden racism in America, about people who don't think they're racist being racist in America. It's absolutely phenomenal. One of the most memorable scenes to me that is just little touches is when um, it cuts to Allison Williams when she's sitting in her bedroom, like they're already uh, torturing Daniel Kaluuya, like under under in the basement, and she's sitting on her bed in listening to her headphones. She's eating milk and and cereal separately, which is means so many things. On the back, behind, on the wall behind her, she's got pictures with all of the other guys that she has brought, like all of her other quote unquote boyfriends. But the cereal thing is so interesting because on one hand. You ever see somebody eat that cereal like that? And you're like, this person has issues. They are a psychopath. Nobody eats cereal like that. It's wacky. But it also stands for something. You're keeping the color Fruit Loops out of the white milk. Like, it's that kind of shit that just is so much deeper. And it means multiple things. And it's one of the most unforgettable parts of that movie for me and of the decade. So that's my number six. I have a confession. Get out. What? I eat my cereal separate from milk. No, you don't. Do I you do. Really? <laughs> what? No, you do not. So wait a minute. Hold on. We're just, okay. Hold on one, <laughs> one minute. Because I saw your look, and I was wondering what that look was for. You have milk yep. in a glass. Yep. And you put dry cereal in a bowl. Yep. And you eat that cereal with your hand or spoon. Yep. And then drink the milk. Yep. What the fuck, dude? <laughs> what the I've Oh Jesus. Okay. I don't I've, like my I've cereal to be re- soggy. I've done a really good job, David, and you can admit this, of not <laughs> dropping F bombs. I've really tried to behave myself, but this warrants it. That's fucking crazy, man. That's crazy. This whole thing is over. Like, what are we doing? I'm sitting in a room with you. I've shared a hundred and this is our 109th actual episode. And you tell me that. Yep. 
Dude, I that's my number six. I gotta All right. take a break. Number gotta, five gotta, for gotta, me. Gotta, Jesus. Hell or high water. Um, one of my Jesus. I love it's Western so, movies. Yeah. Yeah. This to me is like a modern take on a Western. And I love Taylor Sheridan. I'm gonna try um, everything that Taylor Sheridan does, I'm in for at this point. Um my favorite movie from 2016 as I went back and, and reviewed that year. And, you know, whether you talk about the performances, I'm a big Ben Foster fan. Um, you got Chris Pine in there. Um, all that movie I just love. Um, the performances are amazing. And it's, it's a throwback to Westerns for me, which I've always loved and is one of my favorite genres. But it's a modern take and something that I really enjoy and also has, you know, a lot of heart to it as well. David, okay, I'm going to try and compose myself. I'm very <laughs> upset. I need you to know this, that I'm very upset. I meant every word that I said about that part in the movie, and for you to for the record, that, I For the record, I am not racist no, because I don't put the no, milk with me. No, no, but I now am no longer comfortable sitting in this room with you. <laughs> Jesus, Hell or High Water made my long list. It's a phenomenal film. Um, for me, my number five was... Um, I, it's the Wolf of Wall Street, number one. Again, you want to talk about comedies? I, I do think Wolf of Wall Street, while not explicitly being a traditional comedy, is another one of the funniest movies of the last decade. Very much like The Big Short, it manages to tell this story of greed and gluttony and excess, but in a way that not only entertains us and, and oddly wants makes the audience want to hang out with these guys, but then judges you for it, you know? Like, it's, it's phenomenally made. It's phenomenally crafted, acted, DiCaprio, Scorsese, directing at an energy that directors half his age wish they had, you know? And, and, and again, like, I, I, love, I love based on true story movies. Like you said, The Big Short's on my long list. Um, the Social Network's on my long list. Moneyball. First Man, all these types of movies are on my long list, but The Wolf of Wall Street stood out at number five for me. So, All right, number four for me is Skyfall. No, wow, okay, okay. If you're, and, and here would be the reasons. First, we, we've had tons of Bonds movies at this point. Sure. Without a doubt in my mind, Skyfall is the best. We Bond got a movie. whole decade of Daniel Craig. And for Skyfall to be the best ever ever that to me is a statement in its own it's a, um, it's a I, monumental achievement i would argue it has the best villain ever Ooh. javier bardem i mean amazing silva amazing Phenomenal. his his performance in is amazing his first lines when you first meet him on his the whole island introduction. his whole introduction it's just amazing and i love the daniel craig everything that they've done with bond since daniel craig stepped in as Bond. Sure. And Sam Mendes is amazing in it. Like everything about that film is perfect. Like I can't say a single nitpick about that movie as a Bond movie. And I'm a big Bond fan. And so for it to just hit on literally every aspect of that film, it's perfect. It also me. manages to be a film about multiple things. About yeah. about the the you know, about England's role in the world of war, about you know, the ghosts coming back to haunt you and, mm -hmm. and things like that. Yeah, man, Skyfall is phenomenal. Also on my long list. Um, number four for me was Avengers Endgame. 
you know, and, and again, there's so many comic book movies that came out this year, whether it be The Dark Knight Rises, whether it be Black Panther, uh, The Avengers, yeah, the first Avengers, and, you know, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy, like all those movies are movies that made it on my long list. But again, the movie that brings it all together, the movie that puts the exclamation point at the end of the sentence, Avengers Endgame, as, as, a, as a, a cumulative um, achievement, uh, stands as my number four movie of the decade. All right. Now, my number three is Inception. Okay. My number two. Um, was my top movie of 2010. It's, you know, it's everything I think about when I think of Christopher Nolan. It's what... You know, obviously, he took notice of him when he came out with Dark Knight mm-hmm. for to a lesser degree when you had Batman Begins. Sure. But obviously, Dark Knight. But I feel like you still walked away from Dark Knight more thinking about the performance that Heath Ledger did as Joker. Sure. And that's what most people's memory is, even though it's Christopher Nolan and it's very distinct Christopher Nolan. Mm-hmm. It's still Heath Ledger's movie. Sure. Now, with Inception, it's all about. Christopher Nolan, the way that he plays with timelines, the way that uh, he plays with storytelling. Which he's done in in since then. He's very he's, interested in that kind of thing. Exactly. And and Tenet, the new one that's yes. coming out, looks like it's another revisit to kind of this sci-fi world that we had with Inception. So I'm excited for that movie. But Inception, to me, you know, obviously you've got great performances. Lots of people that have blown up since, mm-hmm. too. Um, both, obviously, you had Leo at the lead, who was already a big name, but... Um, you had Tom Hardy who blew up from there. You yep. had, um, oh, what's her name? Ellen Page. Ellen Page, yep. who's continued to blow Maria up Cotillard, since then. Yeah, it's Gordon Levitt. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's just a crazy, unique, original story. And as we talk about, you know, just the thirst for like original stories and the fact that everything seems to be a franchise, a remake, a reboot, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, truly original stories that kind of push the boundaries of film. Uh, to me are exciting and so that's why Inception's definitely uh, number three for me for the decade. Inception's at my number two um, and I think and I said it before but I think one of the things I love the most about Inception and a lot of the sci-fi that came out over the last decade but Inception more than anything else more than the Planet of the Apes trilogy more than Interstellar more than Looper Last Jedi, more than those movies, Inception came out in 2010, and it set the standard. It set the standard for movie trailers. A lot of people mock it, you know, the bong. It set the standard. It set the standard for style, you know. It brought back, like, the tailored suits. It brought back, like, the men on the mission. We're going to do cool stuff, and we're going to dress cool while doing it. it. It brought the music. You know, everybody's been aping Hans Zimmer in Inception for the last decade. And it brought really original, unique storytelling to the forefront, and it really pushed the boundaries of what what everything has done for the decade. It set the standard in 2010, and every movie since then has followed it. That's why it's at my number two. Um, my number three, David, though, to, to match with your number three, is Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, I think I saw this movie five times in the theaters. It is everything that action blockbuster filmmaking can be. And it was very hard for me, David, to put this above something like uh, Fallout, Mission Impossible Fallout, which was my favorite movie of last year. It was very hard for me to put it above something like Skyfall or even a crazy movie like Fast Five. But all of those movies represent the best that action filmmaking can be. But Mad Max does it 
to such a high level. The way that Fury Road can be watched, you can watch Fury Road silently, and it makes total sense. You can watch it in black and white. You can watch it with the soundtrack blaring. I literally did that on a plane once. Somebody three rows ahead of me was watching Fury Road, and I put the soundtrack on in my headphones and watched the movie, and it was it was perfect. It's um, it's amazingly efficient. It doesn't bog you down with who these people are, what do they mean, where did they come from. It is a front-to-back chase movie with some of the best action, some of the best stunts, some of the most seamless visual effects that I've ever seen. Uh, Mad Max Fury Road is phenomenal. It's my number three. I can't argue with that. It's one of my favorites, too, from that year. Um, Number two for me, you mentioned it kind of in passing, is Moneyball. Okay. Um, Combines, again, some of the things that I love in, in quick dialogue, Great writing, mm-hmm. um, awesome performances mm-hmm. from some actors that I love. But it also has the sports aspect, which obviously sports is a big part of my life. Um, tells a, a really cool story of of not only a franchise and, and you get kind of this true sports movie that we don't get a lot anymore. Right. Uh, but you also get the aspect of, you know, seeing Billy Bean's character and how he's his building an organization, and, his history, and yeah. all how that plays into how he thinks, how he builds a team. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, just you see leadership, you see all these different aspects of it. And it's Critical just, thinking outside the box. Yeah, it's just another movie that to me I can go back to. I look forward to going back to over sure. and over again. Like I never get tired of seeing it. It's, if it's on, I'm watching it for at least a stretch of time. Oh, for sure. Much, so, much like Ford v. Ferrari, it's another one of those movies about somebody who's really good at their job. Yeah, absolutely. It's so satisfying. Yeah, there's there's funny moments in it. Mm-hmm. There's, you know... It's quotable. Yeah, there's there's lots of quotes within there. Um, yeah, it's just one of the most memorable movies for me uh, of the last decade. For sure. Uh, it's definitely on my long list. Um, and as I said, number two was Inception for me. It's incredible. Like, that was my... And you had... What you had? Inception number three, right? Number three. All right. All right. Number one, David. Your number one movie of the decade. This this is going to be a complete shocker to you as well as I guarantee you it's not number one on anybody's decade list. I'm, I'm ready. As I went back and I thought about the movies from the last decade... I can't stop smiling. I'm so excited. I don't know what it is. It is a movie that I've rewatched at least a dozen times. Okay. Um, I am a huge fan of whenever it's on Netflix. It's one of those that goes on and off of Netflix, but I watch it all the time. It integrates something that I would say is a newer passion, something that later in life for me has been a passion. It integrates something that's meaningful me as a parent now. Um, It's got that parent-child relationship involved in it. And it's funny. It's a unique way of telling a story in, in, in a lot of ways. But to me, my favorite movie of the last decade, do you have a guess? No. Is Chef. Really? I love that movie. Man, I'm in. I'm in on it. I love that. I so love that. I love all the characters in it. I, I love, love all the performances. That. It's just a feel it's so good. good movie. Yes. And again, it's another movie that like I can pick up midstream and enjoy it to the end of it there's some very memorable scenes in it 
Let's um, go buy a food truck right now. I love I it made me want to buy a food truck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all into the food network now at this stage in my life of watching shows, oh, cooking dude. competitions, all that. The idea of food and cooking and all that and this definitely plays to that passion. Um, but it's got the father-son dynamic, it's got, you know, relationships, all road that kind of stuff. Dynamic. Road trip. Always love a good road trip movie. Oh, I love um, but yeah, I as I went back through all my lists from each of the years and things like that and movies like, you know, again, one of my biggest things is if I could put on one movie right now from the last decade and watch it like Chef would probably be Chef, it. Chef, dude. I love that, man. I, I It's definitely on my long list. Uh, you know, I kind of lump it in with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where you're ce- we're celebrating the arts. Yeah. You know, like... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood celebrates filmmaking. La La Land celebrates music and and, and performance. Um, Argo literally uses filmmaking to save lives. And Chef is, is, Sing Street is all about music. Chef is all about food and the passion that you have in creating it and sharing that passion with others. You're 100% right. Chef is amazing comfort food in that... Yes, there are uh, conflicts, you know, there are roadblocks in the way, but they are not insurmountable. They are not something that that builds stress, you know. Yeah, it's not your perfect setup like this is uh, this is co-parenting. You right. know, we have a divorced couple here. We've got a guy right. who's struggling in his work. You right. got you got all these things. And yet we have such a feel good story of of getting to what really matters, getting to what you're passionate about and enjoying life for what it is and not worrying about the things that you can't control and, and and the bad and sharing that, you know, the bad ways that you go, that everything happens for a reason. Like had he not had that blow up and those issues at his job, he never would have found his passion on a food truck with his kid and all those types of things. Yeah. um, Yeah. I just, I love that movie. That's excellent. That's an amazing number one. Um, My number one, uh, was very, very hard. Uh, and I am, it, it was very difficult because I basically had it boiled down to two movies. Um, and both of the movies are about fighting. Uh, <laughs> I, I love movies where people have to fight through their problems physically. And those problems, those physical manifestations of their problems actually mirror their, the psychological issues that they're having. Yeah, it, it, it might seem cheap. Um, but like the movies, like Warrior, Warrior is one of my favorite movies of the last decade, um, and that was one of the movies that I, you know, almost put here. Movies like The Raid, where you're literally fighting through a building of people just to try and repair the relationship with your brother. You know, movies like Edge of Tomorrow are phenomenal. John Wick, you know, fighting through all these people just to get the semblance of peace, like quite literal text mm-hmm. in the movies. But my number one movie of the last decade is Creed. Ryan Coogler's Creed. Uh, This movie is everything. It makes me laugh. It makes me cry. It makes me cheer. Um, It is such a smart way of continuing on an important story of, of Rocky Balboa and showing and and dealing with multiple issues um you know rocky obviously uh with age and with sickness and obviously it resonates even more for me this year with everything that my dad's been going through um and and it just adds more weight to it but 
the history of Rocky meeting Adonis Creed and all of the things that Michael B. Jordan's character goes through in dealing with, you know, um, dealing with who you are, who you are as a person, living in the shadow of your dad, of your past, when you had no control over that. It's absolutely phenomenal. It, it, it is so... And, and the best part about it is that Ryan Coogler shows you a Philly that exists now that maybe didn't exist back in Rocky. Rocky showed you Philly as like the poor white Italian neighborhoods of Philly. This shows you the African-American communities of Philly. It is very much a Philadelphia movie. And the way that Coogler is able to tie all of that in to race, to um, heritage, to... He, when he says, when he stands up, when, when Creed at the, at the end of the movie, he's got his eye punched shut, and they get around that in such a smart way with the tapping in the back of their hands. And when he's like, I got to prove it, and Rocky's like, prove what? He's like, prove I'm not a mistake? I cry every time. <laughs> it is so, so well made, and it's one of the reasons that Ryan Coogler is another one of those directors. No matter what he's doing, I'm super excited he did Black Panther. You got Coogler on your list as well. Mm-hmm. I'm super excited he's doing Black Panther too. But much like Christopher Nolan getting getting Christopher Nolan getting out of the Batman trilogy, I cannot wait for Ryan Coogler to make another original film. Creed is by far my number one most favorite film of the decade. Which I agree with. While I may have not agreed with how you came to your list or how you did your list, <laughs> if I had to pick what movie is your favorite of the decade... It's definitely Creed. We it's the movie that you've definitely <laughs> sp- talked about the most, listened to the score a ton, watched a ton. All of that makes complete sense that that would be your, your favorite of the decade. For as much as Chef, and I love Chef, as much as Chef wants me, uh, makes me want to learn how to cook, <laughs> Creed makes me want to get jacked and fight <laughs> and and it is just so incredible ludwig we mentioned ludwig before yeah ludwig comes in ryan cooler comes in michael b jordan one of my favorite actors yep. so everything about it is phenomenal i yep. love that you pick chef though that's an excellent pick man well man happy decade to you Happy 2020. Happy 2020 to everybody. Excited for the next decade. Excited for the next decade. We All of these new filmmakers that we talked about are going to keep making films, and that's so exciting that we're going to get more Taika. We're going to get more Greta. We're going to get more Coogler. We're going to get more Jordan Peele. I'm, I'm, I, I love it so much. So, David, thank you for coming with me on this journey. Uh, everybody else, thank you so much. Um, but again, before we go, don't forget, hit that subscribe button wherever you're at. Take a minute to hit subscribe. Check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash the popcorn diet. Consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram at the popcorn diet and check out the popcorn diet. Uh, check out our website, popcorn articles, all of our regular episodes, our top 10 lists, our last Oscar predictions which we will be doing for our next episode. We will be doing our final Oscar predictions before they are released. You can find all of those on our website, popcorndietpodcast.com. But for the Canadian machine, Mr. David Melhorn, I am your very best good movie buddy, Rick Williamson. And we'll see you next time in a, in, in a new year, in a new decade, with another good movie on the Popcorn Diet. Adios.